heard that in, <coughs> excuse me, that in Ireland now the whole country uh, will not allow you to travel nor buy, can't buy and sell, without having the vaccination. So it's here in some places in full force already, and they're working hard on it in this country. The uh, third largest area and the second highest population state in Pakistan, if you don't have the vaccination now, they're taking your SIM card away, and you won't have cell phone or Internet. So it's a, they've got a huge incentive there. No vaccination, no cell phone or internet. And Israel just announced that they're going to start pushing for a third shot. This is the first nation that's done that. That they are going to start with people 60 years old and older uh, to give them a booster shot. They haven't died yet, so... (laughs) Going to have to give them a little more help, I guess. Now, again, in this country, I just listened to a little interview with uh, Joe Biden was giving a speech. (coughs) I guess you can call it that. In which he stated that They're going to be very, very aggressive about getting the shot out and that he has, and his press secretary there as well, echoed it and said it a little clearer that FEMA and the CDC have uh, surge teams set up and wherever they see any kind of a surge, they're going to go in and make everybody get vaccinated and then they put a military general on there And he said that they have a plan where they could get everybody vaccinated within 24 hours if they felt that it was mandatory. Then they had some excerpts from speeches from Donald Trump when he was still president, in which he said, we're going to get everybody vaccinated and we have the military all prepared and ready to go do it. So if you still think he's the Savior, uh, maybe you better think again. There is no Savior out there, except for the Savior. And we started into the book of Hosea last week to show what the Savior says he's going to do. And I think that it is very important that we understand where he's coming from, not just the people of this world and what they think is going to happen and what they plan to do, but what he has planned because he can make his plan happen. Now as we go into chapter 3 of Hosea, it's going to talk about a people who have left their God and are worshiping all kinds of idols and are paying no attention to God. And I want to bring up what they're calling America's new religion here. Because it's quite clear that 
a lot of churches are losing membership and attendance. And you have an evangelical movement which has taken on kind of a rabid thing with their praise meetings and their hallelujahs and their waving their hands. And, and they've created pretty much a new religion. And tens of thousands of people go to some of those churches on Sundays now. Uh, Tele-evangelists, and they have huge crowds. Now, what they are calling America's new religion has a highfalutin-sounding name. It's called Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. That's a kind of a mouthful. <laughs> but in this article, they explained that it has nothing to do with historical Christianity, has very, very little to do with the Bible at all, and that it is a watered-down, feel-good, fake Christianity. Well, that pretty well depicts the evangelical movement of which Worldwide went to. But to break it down, the moralistic part is that the reason we're here is to be good people and to try to do good. That's the moral basis for this new religious movement. We're here to be good people. They don't define what good people are. <laughs> it's just, that's the reason we're here. That's a little different than the booklet I read in the 50s called Why Were You Born? Quite, quite considerably different. So that's the moral side of it. Then therapeutic is the middle word. Now, people go to therapy for what? They want to get their heads straightened out so that they can feel good about themselves, basically. That's what their therapy is. I want to feel good about me. And that's essentially what's at the root of this. Everything is geared to make me feel good about myself and ultimately to make me happy. So the primary, secondary meaning in the definition is to feel good about myself. Now, this has been just recently defined as a new religion, but it's something that's been being pushed for a long, long time. Uh, parents have been being told that the way to rear your children is to make them feel good about themselves. Always feel good. You're a wonderful child. You're the best child there is. We're going to give you a gold star for this and another one for that. And they're not to be disciplined. They're to be complimented and made to feel good about themselves. But that is what they do and have been doing now for about two generations. And it doesn't take too much looking around to see what we've got as a result of that. 
I want to feel good about me and I'll do anything to make me feel good. That's the therapeutic part. Deism is the last word. We've addressed that word some in talking about our founding fathers, Washington and Franklin and uh, those guys, Jefferson, who admitted to and claimed to be deists. And deist is essentially defined as someone who believes that there was a God and that he created things, and then he went off to enjoy life somewhere and not have anything to do with the affairs of men on this earth. He just created us and then left us alone. So that fits in with this new religion. God doesn't really care what we do as long as we feel good, are happy with ourselves, and are having fun. That's the new philosophy. And the God really doesn't care. Uh, he just wants everybody to be, to nice, be nice and be happy. That's his whole attitude. Is everybody down there, just be nice and be happy. <laughs> and they themselves say, all I want to do is try to be nice and be happy. So they think that's God's whole attitude. And that's what they're basing all these tens of thousands of people attending their services Sunday on. That's why we have all the happy, happy in their services. Now that is a perversion of some of God's Word. He wants us to sing. He wants us to dance. He wants us to be happy. Yes, He wants to be to have joy, it's one of the fruits of his spirit. But when you remove everything about God except I just want to be happy, uh, then you miss nearly all of what God is. And that's where we are as a nation. <clears throat> I thought I would go over that with you so you understand what the new emerging religion is. And it will sweep the world. Uh, it won't have anything to do with God. Feel good. Be happy. Now, with that background, let's go back to Hosea 3. talking here about how Hosea had been instructed to marry a hooker and to have children by her, which he then had three, and he named their names after what Israel was all about. You're not my people, and I won't, I'm not your God, and those were essentially the names of those children, and then he said that he would strip her naked uh, because this woman was being depicted as just like Israel. God causes things to be acted out sometimes. And that's what he did with Hosea and this adulteress. 
So then he said at the end of chapter 2, there will be a change, and it will come about that you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So this thing is only going to last so long, and then it will turn around. God is making sure of that. We have been waiting now many decades for a lot of things to happen that we've known were on the horizon. And it's been a long wait. And even, let's say right here, it's about 25 years now since we started learning about these things that we now know. It's been a long haul, and it's been an endurance race. It's been difficult, and yet at the same time joyful in that we've learned a lot of new things, and we know where God is going, and we know what He's been doing. But it still is a long time. And the reason I make that point is this, that now as we see the nations of Israel, particularly this one, Ephraim, Going into the time of her trouble, they don't have long to wait. And they don't have long until it's all over and done. I think it will probably be over and done by 2027. If not, certainly within a year or two or three of that. But probably by then, uh, the millennium will be established after the Day of Atonement in 2027. So they don't have long to wait. <clears throat> this is a quick turnaround. I'm not trying to set dates here, but to be aware that this is going to happen very, very rapidly, even compared to what has happened in the church and how long it's taken. It's taken longer, by far, than what this is going to take. I think part of the reason for that is that the church is people whom God was spiritually working with. And spiritual change takes time. He's given us space for repentance. He's given us opportunity to change and do what we should and to turn to Him. The world is simply going to be decimated in population over a very, very short period of time and be candidates for the second resurrection, and there they will be given time and space to repent. Or if they live, some of them, into the millennium, there they will be given space and time to repent. So God made our endurance race here and now. So we have a certain amount of time, and have had, to do what we need to do. Our time is fast coming to an end, and we better be prepared. The world is starting to hit them already, and it's going to get faster and faster until it winds up in genocide of the whole population of the earth. And again, that's what the elite leaders have Planned. More and more people are waking up to the fact that the COVID shot does no good 
and in fact makes a lot of people more susceptible to passing the disease along as a result of having had the shots. So people are working uh, to wake up, and the leaders are now doing everything in their power to get this thing done before a great number of people wake up and start rejecting. Now, if it's becoming obvious that this thing isn't working and that there are many, many, many casualties, you would think that a leader who cared about people and wanted them to be safe and wanted them to be healthy would be pulling this thing off the market and saying, I'm sorry, we made a huge mistake. But they're not. They're redoubling their efforts to get it done because they know it's a kill shot. They know that. So they're desperate to get it to as many people as they possibly can while they have a window of opportunity. That's what's going on. And in some countries, it's already becoming mandatory, as I said. And it isn't long until it happens here. Oh, I missed one that I jotted on the back of that. Walmart and Disney both announced this Friday, Walmart being probably the biggest employer in the nation, and Disney's close to second. Both of them announced yesterday that all employees must be vaccinated by October 4th, or they will be terminated. Employees who are working from home must be vaccinated before they return to working at the stores and the warehouses. Well, some of us have been working at Walmart over the last three or four or five years. You're not going to be able to work there anymore. Let's, let's see, this is tomorrow's August, September, about two months, and you don't work at Walmart without a vaccination and how long it is before you don't go in the store without one probably isn't too far behind that. I wasn't going to say anything, but I got out of the shower just before coming over and bent over and started one of my little heart fibrillation issues, and I'm sweating pretty profusely and barely sitting here, so... If I happen to fall over, you'll know what it was. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I'm, I determined I'm going to try to make this thing happen, but you notice I'm stumbling around a little bit and can't find a word here and there. Worse than usual. But uh, let's make a try to get through this. Usually I just go lay down and uh, work through it, but... Uh, I think Sabbath service is about as important an activity as we do in our lives. Well, personal prayer and study and so on uh, would supersede it. But as far as an organized activity in life, this is the most important thing there is. That's why he makes it a commanded assembly and says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. 
So that's Bible. That's God who says that. So I'm making this effort in that light, and I hope I make it through. Anyway, let's move on with something more important. Chapter 3, Then the Eternal said to me, Go, even yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children. That's an interesting way that he put that. Here's a woman who is an adulteress, and you are to be with her, and she's to be your concubine. yet a woman beloved of her friend. What he's saying there is Israel is a harlot, but in spite of herself, I'm still her friend and I still love her. So even when God is pronouncing horrible punishment and cursing, he says, don't forget... But even in your present state, I still love you. Now he says, I hear not sinners. And he'll say in here that he won't listen to them. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love them. And ultimately, in spite of everything he says here that is going to happen, he still loves her. And in the end, he's going to save her. But she's going to go through an awful lot in the meantime. So even this pronouncement is given in love. So he says, according to the love of the eternal toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine, would rather eat, drink, and be merry and do our own pursuits than to seek or serve God. And he says, I love you anyway, in spite of it. I think the story of the prodigal son fits there quite well. His father still loved him, but he was going after a way of life that his father did not approve of at all. And his father said, that's what you want to do, go for it. I can't stop you. I can't advise you. Do what you're going to do. We'll talk later, (laughs) was implied. So I brought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. Now, I don't know whether he's referring back to the first harlot here who had the kids or whether this is a a separate situation uh, where he goes and hires this woman, because he did say, go yet and love a woman, beloved of her friends. So it might be, you've already carried this other thing out, now let's do it again with another woman. I, I think that's what it's saying. I didn't go into the different translations to be sure. So he hired her, and in verse 3, I said to her, You shall abide for me many days, you shall not play the harlot, and you shall not be for another man. 
so will I be for you. So he says, the conditions of me paying you are, this is to be a monogamous relationship for as long as it lasts. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. All their leaders are going to be taken away, their gods are going to be taken away, and they will dwell many days without such. So he told her, you're used to whoring around, but that's being taken away from you. You're to be only with me during this time, not with others. Just as Israel is going to be without everything that they normally do and like. That's the force of it. Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the eternal their God and David their king and shall fear the eternal and his goodness in the latter days. So it's talking about the latter days, which include these days we're in, but also can include the millennium. And perhaps even the great white throne judgment, because the millennium is, after all, the seventh day of the seven God gives us. Latter days sometimes implies these very few years that are left here at the end. And this is including that. That before the latter days end, Israel is going to be in this condition. And then afterwards she will return. So this is talking about the latter days and what they are going to do to her. So that what happens here in these last few years, uh, she's going to be without leaders, she's going to be without gods, and it says later she'll be in captivity as well. And then she will turn to God, either in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. Hear you the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Eternal has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, <clears throat> nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. That pretty well describes this nation today. Everything in there. There is any truth left. Even religion is false religion. And there's certainly no mercy. And when they show up to give you the vaccine, uh, they will prove that there's no mercy. They show up to take your guns, they'll prove there's no mercy. And there's no knowledge of God in the land whatsoever. Then he says, here's the kind of nation we are. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. So we're a nation that is immoral, a nation that is violent, a nation that will 
do anything to make itself feel good. And lying and swearing and committing adultery is part of what they do to make themselves feel good. And flagons of wine and drugs and all the things that people do to make themselves feel good. And since the COVID outbreak, there's been a very strong escalation in violence and violent crime and blood touches blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. And we see these things happening now with big die-offs of animals and fish and birds and so on. And they're increasing. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. Everybody's corrupt. He says, don't be out there judging each other. Don't be condemning each other. You're all the same. And you're all like somebody who has a priest there, and he's trying to tell you what's right, and you strive against him. So, your relationship with each other is no good, and you won't listen to anybody who tries to give you good advice. You're all like people who are rebelling against any good advice that might come along. That's our people. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Therefore shall you fall in that day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night. So it doesn't matter. People are priests. They're all wrong. And they're all going down. It's God's judgment. And I will destroy your mother. Now he started this out with a mother of whoredoms. And our nation is a nation of whoredoms. Uh, fornication, adultery are hardly even considered anymore. It's just a lifestyle that people accept and they don't find anything against it anywhere. It's just the way things are. And politically and nationally, militarily, we're the same way. God told us to depend upon Him for our defense. To depend upon Him for our blessings. But we'd rather depend on China Mark or somebody else or our own swords, our own military. So that's where we are. So our mother of the church has been destroyed and our mother of the nation is now in the process of being destroyed. And you see it in the news every day. It's getting bigger and bigger and taking greater hold day by day. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me, seeing you have forgotten 
the law of the God of your God, I will also forget your children. He's addressing the adults, but he says, I'm going to forget your children as well. They are going to be destroyed, man, woman, and child. That's what Deuteronomy 28 says is going to happen to Israel. doesn't matter who you are. They rejected the World Tomorrow broadcast, the radio broadcast, the plain truth, the TV shows. God sent a witness, sent it worldwide, nationwide. There was a time when you could not thumb across the radio dial without encountering the World Tomorrow broadcast somewhere in the band. It would be there at any time of day or night. But it was rejected wholesale. God nothing does nothing except he reveals it by his servants, the prophets. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. All the nations will laugh. All the nations will scoff. They will do with us as they did with Christ. Mock him, divide up his clothes, crown of thorns, we will become the laughing stock of the world. They ate up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. They love it, in other words. They eat it up. Drugs, alcohol, divorce, remarriage, abortion. They love liberality. They love doing anything contrary to God. They eat it up like comfort food. And there shall be, like people, like priests, everybody, doesn't matter. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase. Because they have left off to take heed to the eternal. All these things that make them want to feel good and be happy are going to be taken away. And they won't feel good or be happy either. The new religion is going to fail them. Boredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel that their stocks and their staff declares to them. They look at the things around them, what they have stocked their cane, their way of getting around, in other words, all their helps, all their ways of living, they look to. For the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills, 
under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. They want to do anything to be comfortable, to be happy, to get in the shade, to get out of the sun, to get out of the heat that God is going to put on them. They look for a safe, comfortable place. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom, and your spouses shall commit adultery. Those things don't make you happy, do they? When you hear your mates being unfaithful, it's upsetting, it's traumatic, it's difficult, it's hard. Trust, faith, happiness, joy kind of tend to go away. They commit these things and are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that does not understand shall fall. They think they understand. They think their lifestyle's happy and fun and they're enjoying life. And they don't know that they're not. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. God isn't going to bring the house down on top of them and lightning when they do these things. It's what they've chosen to do. They're going to suffer the consequences of their actions. And God isn't going to say, okay, you did this, zap. You did that, zap. He's just going to leave it alone. He's not going to let the nation go where it's going. For they themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people does not understand shall fall. It's going to be the consequences of the way of life. God isn't going to have to zap people. You know, the old God's going to get you for that some religions had. Uh, doesn't have to. Some things have consequences. You fall off a ladder, there are consequences. You hit the ground hard. Now, maybe you were doing something up on that ladder you shouldn't have been doing. I don't know what. Maybe you were. God didn't want to knock you off the ladder. But if you misstep, you'll fall off, and you'll suffer the consequences of gravity. <laughs> That's just the way it is. God's laws are just like gravity. You break them, and they will eventually break you. Because God made the commandments to be a way of life. It is the way He lives. And if we break those rules, we will eventually wind up unhappy, injured, emotionally shot, and ultimately dead. Because you can't live contrary to God's way and have a happy life beyond a certain point. Now, you can up to a point. You know what I mean? hate to use that expression. People use it for filler. 
But Paul does talk about the temporary pleasures of sin. Can sin be fun? Oh, you bet it can. Sin can be a lot of fun. Kids, when they're growing up, they got rules in the house. They got rules at school, or used to. But breaking those rules, you thought would be fun. And sometimes they can be. You see people who are drunk as a skunk, and they can look like they're having a lot of fun. And they are. They're laughing and joking and dancing and just having a ball. And fornication and adultery can be a lot of fun. It's a feel-good experience until the consequences come. And you're sitting at the bar stool saying, oh, why did I do what I do and why did he or she leave me? And now what am I going to do? Because those things catch up with you. They can be fun temporarily. And then the penalties come. The hurt comes. The emotional upset. The doubting self. The not feeling good about self. Those things all come. So God says, I don't, I'm not going to worry about it. Do what you're going to do. You'll find out what it's about. You'll fall. Though you Israel play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and count not you unto Gilgal, or come not to Gilgal, neither go you up to Bethaven, nor swear, the Lord lives. It says, you're on your own, but I'm still here. <laughs> and you'll, you'll have a day of reckoning with me somewhere down the line. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Have you ever tried to lead an animal that is not broke to lead? I mean, even a dog can pull back and half choke themselves. Because they don't understand being led and don't want to be led, so they plant all four feet. Now with a heifer, a young cow, you put a rope on her for the first time and see if you can lead her to the barn. They'll plant all four feet, they'll lean back as far as they can, they'll pull up against the rope as hard as they can. And sometimes they'll pull back so hard that unless you release some tension and give them some slack, they will literally pass out because they don't have any air. Now God likens Israel to a backsliding heifer. He's trying to lead her in the way that he wants her to go, and she'll have none of it. I will not do what you say. We as a nation are right there, right now. What God is saying here applies more than it has ever applied. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. He's contrasting what we are to what we are going to become. He's not saying we're both at the same time here. (laughs) 
Right now we're sliding backward against him. But he says, when this is all said and done, I'm going to take you in my arms and feed you like a lamb in a large place where there's lots of grass, there's lots of water, there's lots of everything a lamb would need, and I'm going to take you there and take care of you. The deserts will bloom as a rose, and so on and so forth. So, he compares now with what shall be shortly. God does that throughout the prophecies. He'll get on your case pretty hard, and then he'll back off and give a few verses or a chapter about all the good things he's going to do once this is done. It's like a child, I don't know that I ever did this in quite this way, but you start paddling his behind because he needs it. You got a bad attitude or done something, whatever, and is pouty and selfish and whatever. So you give him a few and you stop. And you say, I'm not going to paddle you anymore here if you'll straighten up and do what I'm asking you. And then you get this. So you start hitting them again. And then you stop. And you say, how are we doing? I would love to take you in my arms and hold you and tell you I love you. But I'm not going to do it with that look on your face. So we'll commence again. So a few more swats, these need to hurt. A few more swats, and you stop again and say, how's it going? How's this working for you? You doing okay now? So we start again. And that's kind of the way God does in the prophecies. He says, okay, I'm going to do this. Now he's starting to do it in our nation. He's starting to do it. And then it'll ease up for a week or so, and maybe he'll say, how's it going down there? Oh, I see. So here comes some more, the next wave, the next wave. I did do that with my son. I've told you that, I think, more than once, probably. <clears throat> he was still in diapers, but he could walk around good, and he certainly understood the English language. And normally, when I'd say, come here, Matt, he'd come running, jump in my lap. Whatever he was doing, if Dad was going to show him some tension, he'd run, jump in my lap. Because we enjoyed that together. And then one day, I was sitting at my desk doing some paperwork, and he was sitting over here playing with something. And I recognized he was there, so I turned and I says, held out my hands and says, come here, Matt. I will not, came across his face. Oh, I think I suspect an attitude here. So I thought maybe he didn't hear me. I says, come here, Matt. So I picked him up and paddled his behind. And sat him back down. And then I waited till the <coughs> wailing subsided and said, Come here, Matt. Friendly? Lovingly? 
like I normally would. So we had another spanking. And I says, come here, Matt. The look didn't change a bit. Just the back got stiff and got the lip pooched out and this is the way it is. And I realized then I was in a major battle with my son. Major battle. Had I given in to him at any point, he would have then ruled the house. And it would have been very, very difficult to regain rule of the house. Because once they get the bit set in their teeth, they're going to run with it. Now, after about the 15 or 20th paddling, his mother was in the kitchen crying. She wasn't interfering. She knew better. She knew what was going on. She knew I had to win. At any cost, I had to win. Couldn't let him win. I was the father of the house. I was in charge of the house. Had he won, he would have been in charge. And then his mother would have also begun to disrespect and would have had a mess. So are we going to keep pounding the behind or are we going to let the kid take charge? I don't remember now how long this went on, but it went on for a good long while. Probably an hour. And he was getting so tired and so sleepy that he could hardly wail and cry anymore. But he still could not lean forward to that. I was feeling bad. Man, why don't you just give it up? And finally, he did. I said, come here, Matt. Cheery, like I had been the whole night. He leaned forward. The look went off his face and he leaned forward. Now, he didn't get up and come, which is what I've been wanting him to do. That didn't matter. It was the attitude that changed. It was compliance. It was cooperation. It's yes, Daddy. He leaned forward. That's all I needed. The rebellion was gone. The I will have my way was gone. And then I took him in my arms and loved him and held him for a long time and told him how much I loved him. But the, when dad says something, it has to happen. When mom says something, it has to happen. Because I may be in charge of the house, but mom's next in line. And she's ahead of the children. Now, if this role had been reversed, and my wife had been the one that he was defying, I would have had to have gone in the other room and stayed out of it. I would have had to back her as his superior. No way could I come in the middle of this 
and say, oh, it's okay, honey, mom's just having a bad day, or whatever. No way. That kid has to respect mom, too. Got two levels, dad and mom. Got to do it. God and the church. Our leadership and the nation around us. Our mother, the nation. When that is broken, everything is broken. What if the church said, well, the Father says you ought to keep the commandments, but, you know, they're pretty tough, and it's hard to do that. Uh, really, I think Jesus did away with the law when he came, and the Father didn't really mean what he said, so you don't have to keep the commandments. Just say, I love Jesus, and you'll go to the 13th cloud above paradise. Now, what does that do? The mother interfered with what the father had said. And that caused problems. And they're not even Christians anymore. And God is about to punish them greatly because of rebellion that their mother, the church, caused. Now, where would we be with our Savior if he had been down here living on this earth and the father had looked down at him and said, Jesus, you're doing a pretty good job down there, but I'm just going to tell everybody that sometimes your attitudes just aren't quite right. Now we're told in Scripture that we're to look to Him as our Savior, our Redeemer. But what if the Father hadn't backed Him? What if He hadn't said, That's my Son in whom I am well pleased. Follow Him. What if He had taken away some of that respect that we were to have for Him? We'd be in a mess. It's the same with fathers and mothers and churches and nations. That's why Romans 13 goes into even the authorities that be in the nation. But you respect and abide by the things they say as long as it doesn't interfere with what God says. He's the first authority. So there has to be a line from father through Christ, brother, bride, groom, down to us. And that line cannot be broken. Now, the church made the mistake. I'm getting sidetracked here, and I know it, but it's okay. The church had a organizational chart. I think they even sent it out. Showed God the Father, then Jesus Christ, and third in line was the church. Wrong. Oh, so wrong. The church was never there as third in line between you and the Father and the Son. No man can come between you and God and His Son. But the church put itself there. Worldwide Church of God did. 
You must go to the Father and the Son through the ministry, through us. Oh, so wrong. But it came on down, uh, the church and then the apostle and the evangelist and so on is listed by Paul. And, and there is authority and there were different levels of authority. There's no doubt about it. But never was the line of authority ever impinged in God's mind. You have the Father and the Son, and that is the correct order. Then to the side, if you're going to draw a chart, you put the church. Not direct line authority, but to the side. Why? Because the church is there as a mother and is stated as such in Scripture several times. What is a mother's job in the family? It is to point the children to the father as the head authority in the family. It is her job to help the children love and respect their father. Fathers don't always deserve love and respect. They don't always cause it. Sometimes they need help. But the mother isn't there to come between the father and the children. She's there to help them in their relationship with the father. That's her function. She's there to serve her husband, the father, and be his helpmeet in every way. She's there to support him, to enhance him, to help him in any way she can, spiritually, physically, however she can. She's there to help him with his life. And he's there as the overall one, hopefully to be making a living, to be providing for, to be taking care of, not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually, all the family's needs. So he has to have support in that. Now, why am I here, why are you here as an individual, as a person? We are here for the express purpose, and the express purpose only, of developing a close relationship with the Father and the Son. Now, nothing can get in the way of the building of that relationship. Because of Christ's sacrifice, you have direct contact with the Father 24-7. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and the high priest didn't just go into the Holy of Holies once a year anymore. Every Christian has direct, anytime access to the Father through the Son. The church cannot be in the middle of that and impede it in any way. So her function is just like a wife to a husband. It's off to the side. Her job is to point us to the Father and the Son. Not to get between. Not to come between. But to point them to. 
every child should have direct access to its father. And the mother should not get in the way of that. And if he's working on his relationship with that child, she should not interfere. Just as my wife did not interfere when Matt was going through the most traumatic days of his young life, and I was going through some of the most traumatic days of my entire life, as was his mother. But she was converted, and she did not intervene or interfere. This was between my son and me. This is between God and you. Now, I'm here to do a job. What is my job as part of the mother? Point you to the father. Help you in your relationship with the father. Show you what you need to do to get closer to the father. That's what it's all about. Now, there were times when the ministry had to disfellowship people from the congregation. Because they were causing problems in the congregation and creating difficulties between people and their God. Like the man who was committing incest, and others were saying, this is okay, and they might have been starting to do the same thing themselves. So he had to be put away from the congregation lest he create problems between that congregation and God. It was all about their relationship to God and his lack of one. Now, when Paul put him out of the church and would not let him fellowship with them, he did not come between that man and God. Understand that. He put him out of the congregation for a very good reason. But he did not interfere. He stood to the side And that man could still go to God and repent just as fast as he wanted to. And in that case, in fact, did. He went to God and repented and changed what he was doing. And God then felt he was acceptable. And Paul said, now, let him back in. He's changed. His attitude, his conduct is different. Now he can be part of you. And then they looked upon him as a leper. And he says, now I'm going to have to straighten you out if you don't accept this man back. So the whole point of Paul in the mother's position was to be sure the people were protected in their relationship with God and to be sure that that man was put in a situation where he had better seek God or he was going to die spiritually. And he chose the right path, thankfully. Some others have not. Everything here, everything on earth, is about relationships. I hope we understand that. Why do we keep the law of God? Why? Why do you keep God's law? Well, God said to Okay, I guess that's acceptable on some level. But why did he say to? What's the point? Just because God's bigger than you 
and says do something, and you do it because you were told to. But why did he tell you to in the first place? Now, the Pharisees had their view of why you should keep the law. And their view was so that God will think you're one of the good guys. And so that the people around you will think you're one of the good guys. So they kept the law for what? Accolades from God and man. They kept the law out of vanity. Why do you keep the law, Pharisee? Well, so that I can be good before God and good before men. All vanity. Now, what did God, or what did Christ tell them as a result of their reason for keeping the law? That they were serpents and snakes. Their reason for keeping the law was not valid. Now, the Protestants, taking a little different view, they say you just don't need to keep it. So, they say there's no valid reason for keeping the law. All you have to do is accept Christ, you'll be in the kingdom anyway. So, there is no reason. Worldwide Church of God taught us to keep the law of the very few churches or people on earth who would do so. And we were even told to some degree that obedience is required, but it's by grace through faith that you enter the kingdom of God. So we kind of keep the laws because it's a, it's a good thing to do, and God said to, and therefore you ought to go do it. Now, you can probably think of other reasons why this person or that one decided they ought to keep the law. But I'll tell you what, it's probably invalid. I'm beginning to think that there's only one reason to keep the law. One and one only. This life is about our relationship with the Father and the Son, and their relationship is of total love. There's no shadow of turning between them. They love each other with heart, mind, body, and soul. Spirit, body at that, but still the expression applies. They want us to come to love them with all our heart, mind, body, and soul so that we can live with them forever in love. Faith and hope come to the point they are, will no longer be needed in the sense that we look at them today. You'll always need faith in God throughout eternity that he will never turn away and be something he shouldn't be. But the kind of faith we need as humans and the hope we need as humans will no longer be needed. All that will remain is love. That's why it's the greatest of the three. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. 
The Ten Commandments embody love. That's what they are. That's what they are all about. If you love me, keep my commandments. If we love him, we will keep them. There's your reason for keeping the commandments. It's because we love him. That's why they are a law of love. Paul said the law is holy and just and good and leads to life. But not only life, but happy life. It is those breaking of those commandments that causes grief and misery and separation and hate and emotional disturbance. It is the keeping of them and loving your neighbor as yourself that causes human relationships to be better. And the ultimate is to love God with all your heart and then you will be keeping the commandments perfectly because God is love and his commandments are love. And if we will enter into the kingdom, what did he say? Keep the commandments. Why? Because God is love. And he wants us to be love also. You cannot separate the commandments from love. In any way. And I could find a hundred thousand scriptures to show that. I don't think we've ever understood why we are supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. It's very simple. Because we love God. He says, do this if you love me. I love you. Therefore, I'm going to do it. I love me too much. Therefore, sometimes I don't do it. That means I'm still an idolater when I don't do it. But it means I don't love God as much as I ought to. And when we don't treat our neighbor as well as ourselves, that's idolatry too because we're putting ourselves ahead of our neighbor. Now, God doesn't say you have to put your neighbor ahead of yourself. He says you have to put God ahead of yourself, but not your neighbor. You only have to treat your neighbor as good as you want to be treated. That's all. Pretty good chore right there. Think about that a little bit. I've, I've been mulling it over recently. There's a lot in the Bible about keeping thy commandments. What did David say? Oh, how love I thy law. It is ever with me. Your commands make me wiser than my unworthy foes or whatever we... He loved God's law. Broke it sometimes because he put himself ahead of that love. But he repented deeply when he did that. And he was a man after God's own heart because he loved God and he loved his law. And he kept the law because he loved God. All through the New Testament, that's what you'll find if you start looking at it. The love and the commandments are inseparable. 
And there's nothing in between. We're here to keep the commandments because we love Him. Not because we're afraid we'll die if we break them. That's living in fear. Now He said, if you don't love me, which is keeping my commandments, you will be destroyed. But He doesn't want us to live in fear of being destroyed because we broke them. He wants us to live in hope of eternal salvation and love because we keep them. The commandments are very positive. They have nothing to do with anything except our relationship with God and how much we love Him. Now see why he's writing what he is here in Hosea? Because this nation pays no attention to God's laws, pays no attention to His ways, And even as churches say, you don't need the commandments. And yet, all through the Bible, they're a key to being in the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's nothing going to be in the kingdom of God but love. That's all. There'll be no strained relationships. There'll be no lack of communication. We will see things exactly the same way the Father and the Son see them, and we will get along perfectly. And the reason we keep the commandments is so that those relationships can be made that way. Well, I'm plumb out of time. By the way, about 30 minutes ago, the heart straightened out, so I... Picked up and began to get a little perkier. <laughs> so I'm happy, happy with that. So we'll close there for today.